Luke chapter 7, if you, if you have your Bibles, I hope you, that you do. I'll tell you a little bit of something uh, about where I'm from. I'm from a small town called Bristow, Oklahoma, about 4,000 people. And it is a football town. There's only two sports in that town, and that is football and off-season football. That's it, all right? But, but I want something occurred. This might shock you, but I played basketball in high school. Your, your critical spirit right now is not appreciated. Anyways, uh, our, going into my senior year, the summer before my senior year, Bristol was pre-ranked number one in the state in basketball. And even for a football town, that made the headlines, all right? We had, in a small town, five blue-chip starters, four that were being heavily recruited for Division I schools. And there, it was all the buzz that going on in that year. But something happened the, the summer in between my junior and senior year. Uh, four of the five starters gone. One blew out his knee, done for the year. One transferred to a bigger school for scholarship purposes. And two got expelled for being idiots, all right? And that left yours truly as the starting point guard for the Bristol Pirates which did not exactly evoke a lot of confidence in our hometown. This might be a shock to you, but my junior year, I was a 20-point man, which means I got in the game when we were up by 20 or down by 20 points. <laughs> yes. So all of the buzz was, all of the air was kind of taken out of our balloon. No one was as excited about it. Listen, I still remember our first practice going into the basketball season. Our coach, Daryl Glover, Coach Glover, got us all in the locker room, and man, he was pacing back and forth, and we, I was expecting one of those win one for the Gipper type of speeches, you know, and we could feel the intensity. He'd almost start, start talking, he'd stop, and I'm thinking, oh man, we were on the edge of our seats, and we're like, oh, come on, coach, give us one, and he finally addressed the boys, and he said, men, We are not real good. <laughs> and I didn't say anything, but in my heart I thought, you are horrible at these speeches. He said, if we're not going to get laughed out of our gym, we're going to have to do two things very well this year. One is we're going to have to be fundamentally sound in the basics. And then the second thing he said is we have to want it more than our opponents. And he said that at least a dozen times in that speech that you have to want it more. And that became our battle cry. That became, I mean, he wrote it above the locker room door. Or our gym bags has it. He made t-shirts. When we had pep rallies, there were signs about wanting it more. It became a joke with us, with uh, the, the players. What we we said, be at lunch, and we said, hey, man, give me another Pepsi. And they're like, well, you got to want it more than the other person if you want it. I mean, that was our battle cry. He said it every single practice at least a couple times. Here we go, the first game of the year against the Prague Red Devils. Something was in the water in Prague. The shortest person on their team was 6'1". I mean, these people were from the land of Canaan. Are y'all all right? 
And it, no one was really excited about this game, but here we, it was, we were neck and neck with them, so much so that the radio broadcaster said, maybe we kind of got ahead of ourselves. Maybe there's hope for this team. And a play happened in the fourth quarter. Our best player that was still on the team, his name was Ray Reed. The ball went over his head, probably an errant pass from yours truly, all right? The ball went over his head, and he ran as far as he could. He ran as hard as he could and as fast as he could, but the ball went out of bounds. We lost that game by, I believe, around six points. But we felt like that's a moral victory. Man, we thought, man, we're all right. It's okay. We didn't get laughed out of our gym. We showed up to practice the next day, and our coach cited that one play. He said, Ray, the ball went out of bounds. Line up. We're running wind sprints till you puke. And me being the smart aleck, I said, Coach, hold on. I don't understand why you cited that play. He ran as far as he could, as hard as he could, and as fast as he could. The ball went out of bounds. He said, you're right, Ricky. He ran as far as he could, as hard as he could, and as fast as he could. But he did not dive. And that let us know that the standard that we thought was good enough our coach had a much higher standard than that. Now, in our ministry that we've been a privilege to be a part of, we are professional church goer tours. We're in four or five different churches a week. We will leave Friday and go to New Mexico because we do not own a globe. What we have found, in no, no matter what kind of church it is, we have people beating their head against the wall doing what they think the standard is. They show up, they put money in the plate, they might even sing a few songs, and before they can catch themselves, they'll smile and say amen. And they think that's enough. I hope that when we're done here today, we understand that our coaches' expectations are much higher than that. Would you please stand to your feet? We're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verse 36. The Bible says, and one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Now, all of you vegetarians, the Bible said they sat down to meet. Amen. All right. Verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. With God's help this morning, I'm going to preach this message not in this room. Pray with me. God, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are in a desperate need for a touch from you. So God, I'm asking you for something that I could never earn, and that is for your anointing to be upon me. Lord, even on my best effort, I have nothing to offer this congregation. So, Lord, you must do it all. Lord, I'm calling upon your power that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, that you would make this fresh and new to everyone here. Lord, let us know what your expectations are. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. Our story, this is the, kind of what's going on. Simon, the Pharisee, is having a party. And he's inviting everyone who's anyone to his party. All of the flavors of the month, all right? And he heard about this carpenter's son, Jesus, that was preaching with such boldness down there on the street corner and in the synagogue. And I believe he invited him here maybe to put him in his place. I'll show you why in just a second. In this day and age, there were two religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both religious leaders, though they got their name from very different ways. A Sadducee was born a Sadducee. If your father was a Sadducee, you were the eldest son, by birthright, you were also a Sadducee. But a Pharisee had to earn the right to become a Pharisee. At five years old, these boys were placed in special schools where all they did all day, every day, was learn and memorize the scriptures. At 12 years old, y'all remember back when you were 12 years old? My mother told me at 12 that if I had a brain, I would have taken it out and played with it, all right? At 12 years old, if these young boys were to continue on in their education to one day be a Pharisee, they had to commit to memory the first five books of the Old Testament. Does that impress you? I don't even know my address. And these 12-year-olds were getting through all the begats and numbers. Three years later, at 15 years old, if these, if these young boys were to become apprentices to a Pharisee, at 15, they had to commit to memory the entire Old Testament. Let's be honest. We think we're doing something when we get John 3.16. These 15-year-olds were quoting the entire book of Psalms. Now watch this. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 passages that point towards the coming Messiah, that points towards the very one who Simon has invited to his house. Simon, graduating in the higher court of Pharisee, has spent his entire childhood and adult life memorizing over 300 passages about the man that steps at his door and he does not recognize him. Can I submit to you today that all across the great state of Tennessee, there are people meeting in his church, they're singing his uh, songs, they're reading his Bible, they're putting money in his plate, but they do not recognize him. It's too hard because all we want is really self. I mean, we say it's not about us and it's all about him. But it would be refreshing if someone were just honest. When we showed up to a church for them to say, hey, listen, here it's really all about me. The music better be the right volume. It better be the right temperature. The carpet better be the right color. Someone better not get on the stage without a tie. <laughs> that music is too contemporary. It's too traditional. I don't like the drums. I don't like the organ. Have you seen these people? We call them worship evaluators who have the spiritual gift of criticism. Have you seen them? They come to church almost with tablet and pen and go, I don't like that. What is she wearing? That's going to come up at prayer meeting. We don't recognize him. 
I'm going to show you today that Jesus showed up at the Pharisee's house, an unwelcomed guest. When Jesus came to the door, the customs of the day, the culture said that if you were to invite someone into your home, when you opened the door, you would kiss them on the cheek. Aren't you glad that's not our culture? Brother, what's your name? Steve, stand up for a moment. Steve, it... Steve, you're much taller when you stood up. Go ahead and sit down, Steve. I was up there and it was an optical illusion. Anyways. Steve, I'm glad that I would not have to kiss your mug if you came to my house, all right? But this was not strange back then. This was the culture. If you wanted to welcome someone into your house, you'd give them a kiss on the cheek. But on this day, Jesus did not receive a kiss on the cheek. If you wanted to make sure that this person felt very welcome, you would not only kiss them on the cheek, but then you would take his hand and kiss him on the hand out of respect. But Jesus was not kissed on the cheek nor the hand. If you wanted to go out of your way and make sure that the entire household understood that this was the guest of honor, not only would you kiss him on the cheek, you would kiss him on the hand, but then you would anoint his head with oil out of respect and reverence. But on this day, Christ was not uh, kissed on the cheek, nor the hand, head not anointed with oil. He was not even offered the basic hospitality of the day, which was some water and a towel to clean his feet. This is before Adidas. This is before sidewalks. Their feet got very dirty. You need to understand that it was a disgrace. It was a disgusting thing for a Jew to sit at the table with dirty feet. Jesus was made a spectacle. Jesus was an unwelcomed guest. As others sat by saying, hey, isn't that that man that's been preaching? Let's see if Simon puts him in his place. Came in was the punchline of their joke. No kiss on the cheek. No kiss on the hand. Head not anointed with oil. Christ walked in and it was a socially awkward situation. As others scoffed, murmured, made fun, sneered. And he came and sat at the table in disgrace with dirty feet. Now across the room, there was a woman the Bible calls a sinner. The translation of this, that this is a prostitute. This is a woman of ill repute, a woman of the street. She also would have never been a welcomed guest at a party like this unless it was for illicit entertainment. She, the Bible eludes, she just sort of crashed the party. Possibly a few chapters before this, on the very street corner that she employed, Christ was preaching a different message. She was used to the Pharisees' rhetoric where they just rub your face in your sin. Have you ever been to a church like that? We sing about amazing grace. We preach about grace, but it seems like our Baptist churches fall short of showing much grace today. She was used to all their rhetoric. This is a woman who no one probably even cared about. No one would be seen with her in the daylight. This is a woman who had an alabaster box of ointment. I believe the scholars say that it's the most precious thing she's ever owned. It was worth about one year's wage. 
She had to wear it to make herself attractive to her clients. The only interaction she had had with a man up to that point was when they use her, abuse her, and put her away. She was used to that, but on that street corner, she heard a different message. She heard a message of grace. She heard a message that someone even with a checkered past like herself, she could be washed clean. She could be made whole again. Even someone with that kind of life, God can save. I want to show you something. This red bracelet that I see, the green one, my daughter gave to me and she get, told me why but it was about 30 minute long story and I forgot why <laughs> this red one right there I got in Dyersburg Tennessee a group of troubled girls a van full came from a home one came to the altar during an invitation her, her name was Jessica her question I've never been asked this when I, I was leading her down the Roman road she said God would not save someone like me, though, preacher. She said, see, I've been raped so many times, I've lost count. I'm an addict. I'm on all sorts of drugs. He would not save me. The only thing I could think to say, fighting back the tears, was, Jessica, you are exactly who he's come to save. When she met the Lord, I want you to see this. This is important to you church folks. When she met the Lord, she left different when she heard about Jesus being at this party she made sure I don't care how I get in I'll sneak in I just want to be where he's at I do not understand these fair weather Christians that if there's a drop of rain in the forecast they don't go to church they'll go to Walmart y'all this is the easy part I'm convinced that most professing Christians, should they make it to heaven, they're going to hate it there. If you can't have enough fortitude and discipline to show up a few hours a week and praise him and worship him, what makes you think you're going to do it for eternity? We better wake up on this. She wanted to be there. When God saved my sorry, sin-sick soul near 20 years ago, he did something in me, and I, I haven't gotten over it yet. I don't care if it's raining, sleeting, or snowing. I don't care if it's opening day of deer season. Hey, I don't care if it's Super Bowl Sunday and praise God the Dallas Cowboys are playing. Which would take an act of God anyways. I'm going to be there not because I'm a super Christian but because I have an appetite to be there. She wanted to be where he was. Now she was trying to be inconspicuous. Remember, she could be put to death for her very profession, standing off in a corner. As he walked in the room, she said, oh, that's the one. That's the man I met that changed my life forever. And then they didn't kiss him on the cheek, and her flesh started to be vexed. They, they didn't kiss him on the hand, and she said, how dare they? I hear him talking it and preaching it and reading those scriptures. Does he not know who that is? They didn't anoint his head with oil, and she thought, this is, this is wrong. And then he walked through the room and sat at the table in disgrace, 
with dirty feet and look at me. Something came over her. It no longer mattered what other people thought about her. Oh, listen, we, we talk a big game at church, you know, but if we, it, we, how dare we have ideas of grandeur to change the community here in Lebanon, but we can't stand up for him at the water fountain at work. Something came over her and it no longer mattered what people thought. It no longer mattered what they were going to do to her. She knew what she had to do. She said within her, she said, no, you're not going to treat him like that. Not while I'm here. Not in this room. You're not. And she stood up amidst all of these supposed religious leaders and, and important people. This woman of the street ran and made a beeline to the feet of our Lord. They said, they won't kiss your, your, your cheek. They won't kiss your hand. I'm just going to kiss your feet. The Bible says that she washed the feet. Can you see this picture? Those tears of forgiveness falling down this woman's face onto the dirty feet of Jesus, leaving mud streaks and dirt lines. She took that alabaster box of ointment, the most expensive thing she owned. In another gospel, they ridiculed her for not selling it, giving money to the poor, but it wouldn't have meant as much. I love this. I hope y'all get this. Man, this stirs my heart right here. This represents who she used to be. What she used to thought. What she used to think was valuable, all right? This is what I used to think was important. They want to anoint your head with oil. You can have it all. Now she was in a bind. His tears, muddy with her tears and with the ointment, what was she going to do? No one was going to offer her a towel. She was an unwelcomed guest. She had no choice, she thought. She broke the law. Look at me. It was against the law for a Jewish woman to let down her hair in public. But no one was going to help her out. This was a socially awkward moment. Everyone's sitting back going, what is going on here? Have you ever been to that situation? They happen to me all the time. You walk out of a place and or was in a restaurant and a woman came out of the restroom and she was strutting like she was God's gift to men. Except for she had toilet paper stuck to her shoe. Oh, that wasn't the worst part. Her dress was tucked into the back of her slip and she didn't know. She just, what? And as one, we, we reverted back to like third grade rules, which is if you don't look at it, it's not happening. It's not there. I don't know what. This was a socially awkward moment. No one really knew how to, what to do with this, but it made a difference. No one's going to help me out. I need a towel. I don't have one. But they're not going to treat you like this. Not while I'm here. Not in this room. So she took down that beautiful black hair. 
And she began to dry the feet of our Lord. This is what you're worth. They can put me to death if they want to, but you won't sit here like this. Do you know what we need today? We need some daddies that would say, not in this house. He's not going to be treated like that, not here. I'm not that old, y'all. Amen or something. <laughs> but I remember a time in my life when the TV got turned off every once in a while and families gathered around God's word and the daddy might not have known very much about it, but he read it. Gentlemen, where are men of God? Why do we think that it is the government's job or the school's job to raise our kids? Do you think the Apostle Paul was bellyaching over the Roman schools not teaching the kids to pray? Are you kidding me with a stick? We better wake up. We're going to stand alone one day, not with our church family, alone. For your children. It's not the school's children. It's not the government. It is yours. If my child does not act right, that's on me. Well, I was raised in a time, oh, listen, at church, whatever old woman, because you know the old ladies are the running patrol in church. I was convinced that they were like, there's a committee for that, you know. Whatever old lady caught you running down the hallway, they got the privilege of catching you and wearing you out with a syllable swat. Do you know what a syllable swat is? It looks like this. Don't you ever. That's a syllable swat right there. Anyways. We need some women. We need some mamas that would say, not in this marriage. He's not going to be treated like that. We need some deacons. Have you ever seen a church that was deacon possessed? Because I have. We need some deacons that would go, no, that's not going to happen here. You might as well go down the street to another church. The pastor's not going to be talked about like that. Not here. Not while we're here. We need some office workers. Listen, we need some teenagers. Good to see the young people here. Thank you for skipping school. Don't look at me like that. There ain't no chance all of y'all homeschool. That's what I'm saying, all right? We need some teenagers that would say, hey, not in this school. He's not going to be made the punchline of your joke, not in front of me. It may cost you some friends. It may cost you some invites, but it's worth it. Let me tell y'all something what I learned. When they get older and their life crashes, and it will crash, they don't call their drinking buddy. We need some office workers and where y'all at? They would say, not in this workplace. You're not going to take his name in vain like that. Not while I'm here. It may cost me a promotion, but he's worth it. You will not talk about him like that. Y'all, I'm a mama's boy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Someone said, Ricky, why are you so mean to Theron? Because he's the only guy I traveled that I know I can whip him. That's the, only, that's the reason why. Right? <laughs> I love my mother. So if you were talking about my mother, hey, I'm not a fighter. I've been in four fights my whole life. And my tail end was handed to me four times. But if you talk about my mom, Sir, you may whip me, but I'm going to bleed all over your shirt. How about that? Because there's some things worth fighting for. Let me, let me say that again. Do we have any veterans here today? How many of y'all would agree that there's some things worth fighting for? Now, I'm not talking about being a jerk like we heard preached earlier. Listen, I'm not talking about uh, uh, raising candy, go out and fighting, fist fighting people. I'm saying it is time to stand up. Uh, a black brother preacher, a friend of mine, you know, our black brothers, they can preach different than us white people can. I don't have the juice. What he said is, we become keepers of the aquarium rather than fishers of men. We're so concerned about the color of the carpet. We, we lose sight that the world is in the shape that's in because we've been silent. Someone ought to do something about that. Have you seen what they've said at the White House? Have you seen what they've said down at the school board? Yes, and someone ought to do something about that. Why can't we stand up for it? Tell this story, I'm done. Campus of UCLA, there was a fundamental Bible preacher. Now, he wasn't a very educated man. He didn't have a large church. But he loved the Lord and he loved the students at UCLA. He had this groundbreaking strategy. It was caring about them. Whether you come to my church or not, you need to know that Jesus loves you. And he had a following there on the campus of UCLA. Everyone, that was, when the students would walk up to him, man, he'd pray with them. He'd tell them a story, man. He, he'd preach to them a little bit. He'd encourage them. He'd rebuke some of them out of love. Look, you can say the hard things if people know that you love them. On this campus, there was also a devout atheist. He was everything that preacher was not. He was educated. He was wealthy. He was funny. had all sorts of charisma. You'd want to get a cup of coffee with him until you found out what he stood for. But he was on this quest to poke holes in the gospel, saying it was a crutch for weak-minded people. He said there was no God, and he was going to make sure that the people of UCLA knew it. Well, one day, the preacher and the atheist met. And that atheist took no shame in using the Lord's name in vain. He made fun of the preacher. He told a dirty joke. And then he challenged that preacher to a debate. He said, you know what? Let's just settle this once and, all, once and for all. You and I will debate, and whoever wins will know. Now that preacher said, listen, you do what you got to do, I will too. By the way, Jesus died for you too. But the media got a hold of this. And they started saying that this preacher was yellow, that he was a coward, that he was intimidated, that he knew he would lose. So after some wise counsel, this preacher said, I'll tell you what, you get the whole student body in, the, in one place. What faculty wants to come, the media outlets, you, and listen, let it open to the public and you can't charge for it. You get them all there 
You can call it a debate all you want. I'll be there. Hey, y'all, it happened. The campus of UCLA, the Bible preacher against the atheist, the Bible preacher got first. He went first, he got behind the podium. He didn't worry about arguing or, or debating. He did what any good preacher would do when they had that kind of audience. He preached Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. He was met with a couple golf claps and some hushed Baptist amens. And then he sat down, thankful for his opportunity. That atheist got up and he immediately took the Lord's name in vain. He made fun of this preacher and everyone started laughing. He then started talking bad about our God. He started using what he calls facts, which are bad theories at best. Y'all, please understand this. If the Bible is anything, it is a science book. Let me just tell you two real quick. In, I think in second grade, at least I learned, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Remember that? In, in 1492, we said the earth is not flat, it's round. But in Isaiah... 3,000 years before then, the Bible said the earth is round and has a circumference. 1492, we said the earth is round. And God said, duh! This is my favorite one because it happened in the early 1920s. Nick Bruno, you remember it. Anyways, the early 1920s. Just kidding. I, I don't know why I said that. We thought for 6,000 years God was just a mean old dictator with a yardstick waiting for us to mess up so he could smack us. Because he told them, when you circumcise a child, do it on the eighth day. Some out of ignorance, some out of arrogance did it on another day and the child died. And we just thought, my goodness, that's just a mean rule. It wasn't until the early 1900s that we realized that there's an enzyme released in the male child and only the male child on the eighth day and only on the eighth day that will cause the blood to coagulate so the child will not bleed out internally. Now, he didn't, God didn't tell Abraham that. Abraham, there's an enzyme that released on the eighth day cause the blood to coagulate. He didn't say that. He said, hey, hey, do it on the eighth day. Trust me on that. See, the Bible had not caught up or the science had not caught up to the Bible yet. Still yet, this guy was trying to poke holes in the gospel. He was making fun of Christianity. He was making fun of our God and our Savior. And the story says that you could feel the momentum shift towards the atheist side. But in the back of the room, there was a young teenage girl who just got saved that year. She didn't have a family of her own. Her church was her family. And she had a rocky past and undoubtedly sitting there watching maybe members of her own church sit there and they were doing nothing as this man was blaspheming our God this campus of UCLA she was hoping that would be her peers this coming year wanting to make a good impact wanting to make a good impression on these folks something came over her and it no longer mattered what those people thought about her. And no matter long, it, it, it no longer mattered what, what they were going to do to her. Her reputation wasn't important. This man was talking bad about her Jesus. 
And she said, no. You're not going to do that to him. Not while I'm here. Not in this room. And this young teenage girl stood up amidst thousands of people. And she started to sing. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead. Till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. The story says before they could get through of stand up, stand up for Jesus. Someone over here on this side of the auditorium said, hey, the doctor gave me six months to live with cancer. And that was 10 years ago. All I can tell you is he's the giver and taker of lives. He's the healer. He's the great physician. I'll stand up with you. Someone over here had a marriage. It wasn't on life support. It was a joke. It was dead. It was gone and decaying. He said, I don't don't know how to explain. All I can tell you is God showed up and he is the God of restoration. I'll stand up with you. Someone here on the other side, hey, I was addicted to meth. My family gave up on me. I shouldn't even be alive right now. All I can tell you is God delivered me. I'll stand up with you. And the story says, before they got through the whole first verse of stand up, stand up for Jesus, the entire room had stood up and the atheist ran off the stage never to be seen on the campus of UCLA again all because one seemingly insignificant young girl said, no, you're not going to treat him like that. Not while I'm here. Not in this room. Ladies and gentlemen, one day, not long from today, I'm going to stand and my accuser will be there. The devil will have a list on me and he will be right about all of them. In fact, he's not all knowing, Travis. See, there's some things I've done he don't even know. He's going to say Ricky Caps is the worst of the worst. He's been a hypocrite. He's been a mean, critical Pharisee. He's failed. He's drugged your name in the mud. I'll tell you what, he, it, it's been lasciviousness at its best in his life at times. He deserves hell. And on that day, the very voice that said, let there be light. The very one that said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus will stand up for me. He will say, 
Satan, you're not going to treat him like that. Not while I'm here. Not in this room. You see, devil, that debt has been paid. He belongs to me. Church, look at me. I'm trying to love you. I'm looking and I'm seeing some good folks. Most of you have forgotten more about ministry than I'll ever know, and I appreciate that. But I'm also seeing us bang our head against the wall, spinning our wheels. You are running as hard as you can, as far as you can, and as fast as you can. Lord, today, teach us what it looks like to dive. Lord, bless you today. Hey, these altars are open, y'all. If we're going to reach the community, there's some, or there's an outreach, maybe there's a little inward things we got to take care of. He's not as, when you, when you get right down to it, he's not as important to us as he once was. We would have never let some of these things go on in this nation about 30 years ago. We've grown complacent. We have bowed at the altar of political correctness. It's time that you wake up. Where are you at, men of God, women of God, teenagers? Look, not in this room. No more. You can do that some other place, but not while I'm here. He's far too important for that.